Father, I pray tonight that, that our gathering here would do just that, to honor you. We, we love you and we thank you for who you are. Our Father, we pray that you would derive great pleasure in us as we delight in you. Our Father, I pray that you might help us to stay far away from the evil one who desires to, to damage our witness, to accuse us before you, to, to steal away the confidence we have in who you are and what you can do. And I pray above all, Father, that we would not bring upon ourselves the, uh, the mischief of the enemy by our choices. There are clear, um, dangerous areas that, um, that attract the, the work of the evil one. The footholds that we might give him are strongholds. So I pray, Father, that we might, uh, through the study of your word, be um, conscious of, of those areas and steer wide, never opening doors for uh, the damaging work of the, the enemy of, of your kingdom. I ask that you might help us to uh, communicate clearly what um, the scriptures teach that God's people will be responsive, that together in our investigation tonight we might not just become more knowledgeable, but, but ap- in terms of application, more careful in how we live, what we choose to do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight is going to require your... Um, finding of scriptural texts, dexterity, just like a um, Sunday school sword drill class. We're going to be taking a journey around, uh, it's kind of a mystery tonight, we're going to be going around in a journey tonight and uh, in the scriptures and find out where we're going to uh, land, so it's going to be a, a collection of, um, uh, of topics, but the first is as we try to, to understand the nature of, uh, of this topic of welcoming doors that uh, become satanic strongholds. Um, I want to introduce this conversation with you tonight by, by pointing out that uh, as we begin, as we were looking at Ephesians this morning, just the whole, the whole tenor of the book of Ephesians is, um, is a, a classic um, presentation of the sovereignty of God. And uh, the fact that God is in control of all things. And, and um, it's unmistakable that as you, as you study that, that uh, letter that Paul wrote to uh, Ephesus, that, that God is in control. And um, God is all-powerful. And, uh, and so the question that, that, that begs to be asked, and I, I asked it this morning, I'll ask it again tonight, is if, if God is in control, why, in fact, does he put up with the, the mischief of the evil one and the work of the evil one. And, and um, we realize, that even from the first verse of, of um, Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I mean, just the appointments, the positions that people have, the, the people who are called into the kingdom of God, it's about the will of God. And uh, I think it's important for us to understand that, yes, in fact, the question goes out, well, if, if um, God created... Um, the person who later became called Satan, um, that spirit being, and knew in advance that he was going to be this massive enemy and, and destroyer of, of everything good and right, why not deal with it? Why, why even bother creating him? Well, first of all, we certainly know that God absolutely knew what was going to take place. There's nothing outside of his control or knowledge. And, and I think it's important for us to grab hold and grasp the reality that, that in God's wisdom, there are certain truths that God wished to reveal that can only be revealed by permitting evil to exist. And, and I think the, uh, perhaps the best... Um, scriptural source for that reality is, is, is Romans chapter 9 
And uh, in Romans chapter 9, um, in verse 22, uh, first of all, Paul is talking about, um, you know, one, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purpose and some for common use? And then he says this, But, literally the word but would be there, What if God, choosing or willed to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this, and here it is, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And so uh, Paul's argument in this particular section of the text, in scripture, is, is to explain to us that, that uh, there are certain things that that can be revealed and can only be revealed to us through the permission of evil to exist. Certain characteristics of God's nature, for instance, are manifest or made known to us because evil exists. In the absence of evil, these characteristics would not be apparent to us. And that's, that's just the simple reality of how God is, is running his universe. And and we have to come to terms with that or we're going to constantly be aggravated by the fact, and probably beyond that emotionally, aggravated by the fact that evil exists and, and God doesn't annihilate it. And, and we end up having to be the um, recipients of, of all kinds of nasty things that go on in life and, and, and the, uh, the reality of the, of the mischief of Satan constantly um, tracking us and and prowling around, and, and uh, we'll, lose, we'll lose our footing, we'll lose our balance, we'll, we'll lose um, our, our, our sensitivity to the, the greatness of God. So, so we, we need to simply accept that, that it is God's good plan, and he reveals to us things that he wouldn't other, we wouldn't otherwise know because of this. And it is to his glory, and so we accept that. Well, tonight, as I said to you, I want to... Um, deal with the topic of, of doors, welcoming doors, or footholds, or strongholds. Um, there, there's, a, there's a significant amount of the description in the, in the scriptures about satanic, demonic footholds and strongholds in our lives. And, and the description here is, 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 um, is, is comical, in, in, if it weren't so horrible, in, in the idea of like the pesky salesman who, who um, comes to your door at your house, and, and if you open the door... He's going to step in and um, give you the sales pitch. Or, you know, the, the phone that you pick up and it's dead space. As soon as you pick it up, you know that's a telemarketer, right? So you have a moment to decide what to do with those silences. And, and uh, if you talk in that, after that silent time and you continue to say, hello, 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 you're going to be into a sales conversation within minutes. Well, within seconds, and um, you may end up buying something you don't want. Well, some may, anyway. And, and so the idea of this foothold is there are things that you can do or may do in your life that, that in fact, welcome satanic work into your life. Um, are most of you familiar with the term chum? Not as in buddy, but as in a fisherman. You know what chumming is? Chumming is um, when you try to attract some aggressively feed, aggressive feeding fish. You actually seed the water or put into the water some things they might like to eat. So it attracts them to that. And then you put something in with a hook and, and hopefully they will take the hook. And uh, that's how you attract. So it's chumming is what it's called. And it's a fisherman tactic for attracting aggressive feeders. And um, in fact, sin plays that role in our lives with respect to Satan. Sin is really satanic chum. When we are allowing ourselves, our, our lives, to, to um, become attracted to sinfulness, we are immediately inviting the work of the evil one in, in, into, our, uh, into the realm of our lives. So if we were to mix our metaphors tonight... 
the question that I'm really asking is, what is the chum that turns our lives into welcoming doors? Now, you could never go out of here and actually mix those things together and anybody even understand what you're talking about. But you do now because we've talked about it. So what is the chum, the sin, that presents a welcoming door in your life? By the way, let me just say at the outset of this, a Christian cannot be possessed by Satan. Um, And I'll, I'll tell you why I believe that to be so from the scriptures a verse that, that we could pick a number of verses, but Ephesians chapter 1, since we've been hanging out in Ephesians, verse 14, it talks about us getting the Holy Spirit, and then it says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. We are owned by another. We are God's possession, and we therefore cannot be possessed or owned by the evil one. But he can gain a stronghold in our lives or a foothold. And a text that, two, two texts that I want to show you those words are 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And uh, in in Ephesians uh, 4.27, there it talks about anger, and we'll get there in a few moments, but um, I want you to see the word here. In your anger, do not let the sun go down, or in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. So Paul is writing to Christians in both Corinthians and in Ephesians, and he is saying that it is possible. It's not possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon, by the demonic, but it is possible for us to give to give up strongholds and footholds, which permits or invites satanic activity in your in your life. That is, if you allow him, right? So. So I want to talk to you tonight about doors you, can, you, you could open or you might open. And this is ado- adopt, adapted or taken from uh, the Serpent of Paradise, Erwin Lutzer's done the, the, the digging out of this, uh, this work that I want to share with you tonight. The first is this. The first door that you can open to present a stronghold is, the, uh, is, is rebellion. Um, rebellion is the first sin ever committed. Um, we, could, we could camp here the rest of the night, and I'll, I'll, at, at risk of talking too long here, I'll be, have to be careful, but, um, because this is such a significant... In fact, it, it probably belongs at the, the top of the list. If you're talking about seven different uh, footholds, which is what I want to talk tonight, seven different um, doors that you can open, um, uh, rebellion is at the top of the list. And um, in, in fact, uh, as, I, as I point out to you, it is the first sin that was ever committed. And of course, that sin was committed by Satan himself. I want you to look in a couple of texts tonight. Isaiah chapter 14 and uh, Isaiah chapter tw- or Ezekiel 28. You may look up both of them at the same time and have your finger in one and uh, your eyes in the other. It's Isaiah 14 and um, Ezekiel 28. There's a description here of, um, um, as the prophet is writing in terms of uh, a description of rebellious kings of the world. But as he's, as he's writing to us or speaking to us about these rebellious kings of the world, he breaks into something that couldn't possibly describe humans. It describes something beyond the human context. And um, in, in so doing, what uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah does is actually gives us a glimpse into the fall of Satan, into his character and nature, and it reminds us that behind the evil of the kings of the nations uh, is the evil one himself. And, and so you, you have this description in Isaiah 14, uh, beginning at verse 13, you said in your heart, start at verse 12 actually, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. 
you who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned on the mount of of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, I will, and here it is, I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to the grave to the depths of the pit. And over in, um, sorry, Ezekiel 28, A description again of king, and Ezekiel gives a, a background of the king of Tyre, and he says this in verse 2, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a god. I sit on the throne of a god in the heart of the seas. And of course he's speaking to the king of Tyre, so he says, But you are a man, not a god, though you think you are as wise as a god. But then if we slip down to verse 12, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now the king of Tyre could not possibly have been in the garden of Eden. So the prophet here, Ezekiel, breaks into a description again of what is the fuel behind the wickedness of the king of Tyre. And he's talking now about the, the reality of, of, of Satan. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and, and, and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till wickedness was found in you. Now, no human being is ever blameless. In our mother's womb, we are not blameless. So you have here this description that, uh, that, that gives us a, a, a background understanding of the, the, um, this fallen angel that we call Satan. The first ever committed uh, sin was this sin of rebellion. And, and when did it occur? Because... Um, if you go back to Genesis, you're looking at um, the description of creation, and uh, we know that, the, uh, that Satan was a created being, so you're looking at creation, and the description of creation, when the, 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 the finality of it in the sixth day, God says, uh, looked at his creation and said, everything is very good. Now, he wouldn't look at his creation and say, everything is very good, if already something had occurred. That's why I don't buy into the gap theory and all that other stuff that has been proposed, you have here a perfect creation, including the um, spiritual forces that we call angels. So you have this, this, this uh, description. And then, of course, chapter 2 is, is a, uh, a, a broadening or a, a further insight into the creation of man and woman. And then all of a sudden in chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. And, and then you start to see that there's some mischief afoot. So I would propose to you that sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, the events that are described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 occurred. And in that period of time, whatever that was, this leading an angel who falls through rebellion, takes with him a, if you take Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 as the description of the kind of numbers that we're talking about, takes with him one third approximately of the angelic creation who fall with him. And um, so the second act of rebellion is the angels who join with uh, Satan. Um, by the way, the, uh, the only thing that prevented all of the angels from falling is a description that we get in 1 Timothy 5.21. Remember I told you we were going to be bouncing all over the place tonight, so that we are. 1 Timothy uh, 5.21, and this stuff is worth you looking at because it's important. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. 
to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. So, in fact, because there was a certain number of angels that were by decree of God elect to serve him, they were prevented, the, the, the whole of the angelic force may have joined Satan in his rebellion. And so the second act of rebellion is the angel horde that went with uh, Satan, which, by the way, is all sourced in pride, want to be like the Most High, and fueled by discontent. Satan was created with a significant responsibility to bring praise from the universe to God. uh, Satan was created to be the primary worship leader of the universe. What a tremendous responsibility and role was granted to him, but it was below God. He was to bring praise to God. And so, uh, sourced in pride and fueled by discontent, which means you, discontent is simply you know God, but don't believe that God's ways are best. He um, chooses to rebel and take force with them. And then the third act of rebellion is found in Genesis chapter 3. And the third act of rebellion is uh, from Adam and Eve. And it's interesting that the language is the very similar language to that that you get out of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. When he goes to Eve and he says, asks Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And, and then he says, you will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Which is exactly out of Isaiah 14, verse 14. Like the Most High. Which is what he wanted. And now he proposes that clearly to the human species. And so um, Eve then chooses at that moment to be discontented with all that she was granted. And to make the choice, along with Adam, to not believe that God's ways are best. And you have this rebellion. And uh, the tree of life and the tree of the garden of good and evil. So he, ta- he tempts them to take up from the tree of the, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of, a, instead of um, choosing the tree of life, which by the way was the choice to abundant life. It's, it's no different than this choice that we have in, in, uh, pictured for us in, uh, in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I've come to bring them life. And I've come to bring you life, and I've come to bring it to you abundantly. It's the same kind of language as the, as the whole tree of life concept, where you, you enjoy the fullness of the life of God. God had already breathed into them the breath of life, and now they were, would be invited to take from the tree of life. And presumably, had they have chosen to do that, they would have enjoyed the, uh, uh, the fullness of life that God had for them in abundance. And, and that they would have known... Um, the, um, the uh, realities of good and evil through the perspective of God as the ultimate reality, uh, ultimate good. But in choosing to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they set themselves up as the original humanists who would now make their choices based on how they perceive things. Eve, Eve, it says it in the text. Eve noticed with her eyes that it looked good and she, she, it was good to, to touch and good to taste. And she, so she made the choices on what is good and what is not good on the basis of her own senses. And then she, she and Adam locked human nature into that choice. All because of a first act of rebellion that led to a second act of rebellion that now leads to the third act of rebellion and sets us up now as a, which fully explains, by the way, why people by nature, when you ask them the question, you know, is, is God going to accept you or whatever? And they're always saying, well, I believe my good deeds will be greater than my bad deeds and God will be okay with that. That's the original fruit issue of the knowledge of good and evil. That humans have taken upon themselves. So the standard is no longer God. The standard is me. 
you see, which we have to be redeemed from. So, um, as I said, I have to resist the urge to talk too long on this particular subject, but that's the, the issue of rebellion. And um, in 1 Samuel 15, 23, of course, the description there that, that um, is, is given to, um, to Saul is that rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. You know why that is? Because it's demon worship. And idolatry, rebellion is like uh, the sin of idolatry. And do you know why that is? Because idolatry is the worship of other gods who are no gods, but if you tracked with us a few weeks ago what Paul talks about, or last week, um, the, behind the no gods are demons. And so when we will not have God to rule over us, we rebel against God. It's like the sin of witchcraft or idolatry. Whether it be children to parents, or adults to Christ, or adults to God-appointed leadership. Either way, it's adore. As Lutzer puts it, to rebel is to follow the prince of rebels. And by the way, when you choose to do that, see, I don't believe that Satan knew what was going to happen to him on the basis of the choices he was making. See, um, you have a certain freedom in life to make decisions, but you never control the results. And that's why it is absolutely imperative for us to be people who take God's word at, at face value and obey it. Not always because we understand. But once we choose to disobey the word of God, rebel against the word of God, it's, it's quite simple to do that. You can control that decision. But you can never control the results of that decision. And, and uh, I think all of us know, in, because we believe certain characteristic of God is great and wonderful and good and amazing and gracious, that we all know that, that God always had Lucifer, Lucifer's best interests at heart. That, that if Lucifer had have chosen God, it would have always been the best for And in thinking that he had a better plan that would be best for him, he made that decision that ended up as a chaotic result and resulting in his ultimate damnation and permanent damnation. So don't rebel. And I don't feel bad about taking too long with that particular subject because it's such a a crucial one for our lives. The second one I want to look at tonight quickly is anger. In, in the issues of anger, of course, in Ephesians 4, the, the text there, and, and Paul develops that from Psalm 4, verse 4, by the way. Ephesians 4, verse 26, is really Psalm 4, 4. In your anger do not sin. So it is possible to be angry and not sin, right? It's possible to be angry at injustice, angry at evil, but not to sin. This is talking about anger that leads to sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So um, there are two kinds of anger that I think are being described here. One is destructive anger, which is irrational. It's uncontrollable. There are fits of rage and temper that is not directed at moral danger. It's more um, related to a personal objection due to an insult that you might be facing with perhaps little provocation. That's destructive anger. When Christ was angry, he was always angry uh, at some sort of um, opposition to the Father in heaven. He, he didn't brood in anger and fits of rage and, and, and go off the, uh, off the, fly off the handle because someone was objecting to him. And so... Um, this destructive anger that, that becomes sinful is, is just that. It is when we um, are either insulted or it's about us and we just go crazy. Uh, that is an open door for Satan to, to get a foothold into your life. That's what it says here. Don't let the sun go down. So there's lingering anger. Anger needs a curfew. 
It has to be curfewed, and by the way, you'll notice the curfew isn't very lengthy here. It's when that yellow thing hits the west horizon, that's it, curfew's up. Deal with your anger. And um, the uh, word here used, foothold, is the word tapas, which is, um, it, it, it's, it's actually where, where Satan gains some, some footing into your life. And it allows an evil spirit to have potential and partial entrance into your life. This is nothing to fool around with. Perhaps you've encountered where people go from being rational and calm and, and, and then uh, they just go crazy, angry, just fits of rage and temper that is uncontrollable and inexplicable on the basis of the, the minimal uh, um, upset that's occurred. That's because there's more at more happening than just the human being. There's a partial entrance of a, of, of a demonic force in your life. So be very careful about anger. And what does anger lead us to? Ultimately, it leads to the third, which is hatred or murder. What were the explanation of Cain's actions? Back in Genesis chapter 4, what was the explanation of Cain's actions? It grew out of anger toward his brother. Uh, Genesis 4, 6. The Lord himself says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin, by the way, is personified in this text. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin is waiting to pounce on you, Cain. And you won't curfew your anger against your brother. And there was certainly anger directed at God as well because he accepted um, his brother's uh, sacrifice and wasn't accepting his. And um, so this, this sin that's crouching is this personified as this chum, right, that's attracting satanic attention. And, and back in 1 John, it gives a, a, another description of Cain, or helps to, to give us some description of, of Cain. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says there that, um, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, and murdered his brother. So what's the explanation behind what Cain did? His hatred, his murder, the, uh, his allowing sin, sin to... Uh, have dominion in his life and his invitation thereby to allow demonic uh, 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 effects in his life, it ends up leading to murder of his brother because he belonged to the evil one. In chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And by the way, uh, Satan's desire, of course, and design on human beings is to... Lead us to murder one another. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can, uh, if he can succeed in um, in his work of hatred, he will he will attempt to have people hate themselves to such a degree that they want to commit suicide. The explanation behind many suicides are as a result of. Satanic opposition and, and work on the basis of this very thing to get people to hate themselves so much so that they murder themselves. In 1 John 5 19, the whole world is energized by the violent, murderous one himself. Fourthly, there's. Um, the open door of guilt. There's a picture in um, Zechariah of Joshua. And uh, in that first verse, it says there, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. If you read, you continue to read on for the next six verses or so, you'll, you'll encounter in that particular text a description of, uh, of Joshua representing the people of Israel, and he's in filthy rags, and he's representing the, the sinfulness of the people. And, and what Satan loves to do is, is stand in the presence of God on the basis of some sinful action on your part and accuse you before God. 
And, and so you have this picture in Zechariah of that very thing happening. And, and um, if we can find it uh, very quickly, in Zechariah chapter 3... Uh, The next verse goes on, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, Uh, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And then it says, now Joshua Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And so there's this beautiful picture of God forgiving his sin and and taking off the sin of of the the clothing that was representing sin. But you have Satan... Ironically, um, being both the one who tempts you to sin, and then when you do it, accusing you before God. Remember I told you that the uh, word kill there, thuse, is the whole idea of eating us alive or sacrificing us. Now, the Holy Spirit uses guilt to drive us to Christ prior to salvation. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. If you take the time to look there in verses 7 through 11, it talks there about the Holy Spirit and the gift that, that by Christ leaving and going to heaven and then the Holy Spirit being left as the comforter. It says there that comforter brings conviction from guilt that we might turn to Christ. And so the, uh, the beautiful work of God is to turn, use guilt to turn unbelievers to himself. Satan uses guilt to drive a wedge between God and us. That's the difference. Somehow to say to you, your sins are too great. And at the same time, talking to God, look at this one. Look at that one. By the way, chronic guilt leads to hopelessness, and which leads to reclusiveness. The uh, picture of the Gadarene demoniac Mark chapter 5, 3, where he couldn't bear to be with people anymore. Satan so wants to destroy and damage people. And you'll see this happen in their lives, that guilt upon guilt upon guilt until there's a hopelessness. And that hopelessness leads to despair. And that despair leads to pulling back from people so that you become a complete recluse. That's the work of Satan. When you lose confidence in the promises of God or delayed prayer results, they undermine your hope and Satan whispers into your ear, God is not going to help you because you are too sinful. That's a lie from Satan. That's from the accuser. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Timothy is warned by Paul that the Spirit clearly says that in later times... 1 Timothy 4.1, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Or in the New American Standard, the literal translation there is doctrine of demons. False religions are an open door to satanic uh, opposition. Satanic counterfeits intended to replace the true God. By the way, what does God think of all of these... um, Satanic counterfeits. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we get a pretty um, graphic description of what God thinks about anything outside of faith in Him. If anyone, verse 19, um, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9, when you enter the land your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination. Or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Now listen, anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The message here is the reason that these people are being so easily defeated and God is going to give you this land is because of these very practices. They are choosing to be weakened by their uh, willingness to invite and allow satanic work among them. And I must say to you, I I would think I shouldn't have to say this to you, but let me warn you, uh, uh, in the basis of the scripture text here, Christians must never dabble 
in a cult or occultish things. None of these things are harmless or silly little childish games. Uh, God himself says that these are detestable practices and those who practice these things, he himself detests. This is an opening up of inviting satanic, uh, uh, satanic invitation into your lives. And uh, truth is so critical in these realities, in this whole idea of false religion. Uh, we, we see around ourselves so-called religions that propose to serve God. And, and I want to say to you again that anything that does not worship Jesus Christ as truth and God and Savior and the only way, the only truth, the only life is a false religion. And when Jesus is talking even about the Jews and the synagogue in Revelation chapter 2, he says that they are so-called Jews, and he says that because it's not about nationality, not about ethnicity, it's about the heart. It's about their choice. And their choice was to not choose to follow Christ. And as a result of that, he calls the synagogue a synagogue of Satan. You can look it up yourself. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. That's how Jesus himself describes it. And so we, are not, we don't find ourselves in the world of equally acceptable faith options. I think I'm preaching to the choir tonight. I really do. But I fear at times because sometimes I listen to some conversations and we, we can get a little bit watered down in this stuff and, and, uh, and get caught in the, the whole reality of Satan who masquerades as an angel of light. And, and we can too easily uh, get duped into the idea that there are some harmless well-meaning religious attempts in our world that we shouldn't be all too amped up about. I would submit to you that that's not the way Christians ought to handle this thing. We should be very much passionately committed to this, this one truth, reality. We are not one of many equally available options in this smorgasbord of interesting religions that, that somehow bring some sort of moral framework to a person's life. That's not how Jesus sees it. And, and uh, anything outside of worship of the living God through Jesus Christ is worship in the demonic realm. Invitation for strongholds and footholds. So let's be ever vigilant and more passionate than ever about this reality. I want to close down with you with two other quick comments tonight. And the sixth is fear. Fear is an invitation to allow the evil one to come into our lives. That's what the fiery darts is all about. That's why he fires the darts at us like that in Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, he wants to cause us to be afraid, so afraid, that um, he brings fear into our lives that will paralyze or control, uh, to particularly those kinds of fears that paralyze or control us, preventing appropriate responses or behavior so that we have irrational fears. Fear of identifying with Christ. And, um, for instance, because in 1 John 4.18, we as followers of Christ are referred to in this particular scripture text. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This description of being perfectly loved by God, of being loved by him... We are now under, not under condemnation. And therefore, we are not called to fear. We've not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of boldness, confidence, not to be afraid. 
I, we could talk a lot about that, but, but um, many of us do not see these as door openers. We just think, oh, it's no big deal. It's just the way I'm made. It's just my emotion. It's just the way I am. I'm telling you that um, God has not saved us to be fearful people. And it, um, it, it undermines the power of God. And, and it, it, it misses the opportunity for us to, to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, His love and His mercy, His ability to take care of His own. Think about how it would insult you, dads, if your children were running around all over the place telling people how afraid they were to be in your home. Afraid because they, they weren't sure you'd look, take care of them. They weren't sure you'd feed them. They, they weren't sure that you'd look after them if they got in a pinch. I mean, think about that. How it would hurt you. And we run around as Christians shrinking in fear and being terrorized and afraid and paralyzed. Well, the next headlines in the newspaper have us shaking and quaking like everybody at the office. What must our Heavenly Father think of that demonstration? And when we do that, we, we're giving way to the fiery darts. We're not holding up our shield of faith. It says, no, no matter, come hell or high water, my God will look after me. I'm not going to be afraid. How many times does God have to tell us in the word of God, fear not. Don't be afraid. It's a bad door. Don't open it. Finally, sexual immorality. I guess you'd figure on that one. Numbers 25, 1 and 2, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Who was behind that? Satan, of course. Sexual perversions and demonic have a historic connection, and they always will. And by the way, I just wanted to, to point out that, um, that uh, Paul warns married people in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, that it's possible for you to open up a door. Paul warns married people that the, the door of sexual temptation through forced or unnatural or unplanned celibacy within marriage. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's another foothold. Well, what's the, the summary of all this for, for the day and actually for this series, really? James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourselves to God. What's, what's, this, what's the big time? The big picture strategy for all of this stuff. Submit yourselves to God. He's your only hope. You're owned by Him. You're loved by Him. You're a valued treasure possession of His. He's the one who's strong. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the one who will enable you to be strong. He's the one, right, the under armor. Jesus Christ moves into your life. Submit yourselves to God. Christ is victorious. Resist the devil. This is an automatic routine thing. You have to put effort into this. You have to fight all the time because Satan keeps coming back. Doesn't give up. You remember when he tempted Christ in the wilderness? And it says he went away until, what? An opportune time. That's the Son of God. You have to fight repeatedly. You have to live repentantly when you sin Seek forgiveness. Turn from your sin and arm yourselves for battle. And then thirdly, draw near to God. When Satan comes calling, submit to God, resist him, and draw near to God. That's a replacement. What Eve needed to do in the garden, and this would have fixed it for all of us, she needed to turn to her heavenly father. And say to him, Father, there is a voice asking me to be discontented with you. I don't want to listen to this voice. Would you remind me all over again 
why I should be contented in you. Because it says there, draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. That's the strategy God's given to us. This is a battle we can win. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee, it says. Draw near to God. That's your replacement. You're sending him away and replacing with God all over again, and he will draw near to you. Our Father, thank you for helping us through this series, because I know there's been lots of opposition in the invisible world. There's no way Satan wanted anybody in this room to know any of this stuff for the last several weeks. And Lord, I thank you for graciously protecting us. I thank you, Father, for implanting the word of God in our hearts because Satan has been hanging out here trying to scoop it away so that the word of God would not settle into our lives. But Father, we have asked you to um, energize your word in our lives. Thank you for doing that. And I pray, Father, that we will think and ponder all of these things Go back and research these scriptures. We've just done a, a survey in so many ways today. We haven't uh, taken the time to be in depth. There's so much depth for us to, to self-feed. Lord, I pray that we might do that so that we will be equipped and ready for the day of evil. And when it comes, we will stand and fight because we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Thank you, Father, for giving us the victory in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you'll continue to enable us to enjoy that victory, that people will come to know Christ, that people will turn from sinful choices, that you will raise up ministers to go into sinful places and reach people for Christ, that you will help us, Father, in every possible way to grow in the likeness of Christ our Savior, I pray, and the, uh, that the, the evil one will not be able to obstruct that growth. And I pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who defeated the works of the devil at the cross of Calvary on our behalf. And it's in his name we praise him. Amen.